What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Kofinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. My guests in this week's episode are Matt Ridley and Alina Chan. Alina is a Canadian molecular biologist specializing in gene therapy and cell engineering at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And Matt is a British science journalist who has written countless best-selling books on subjects ranging from evolution to innovation to genomic science. They are both the co-authors of an electrifying new book titled Viral that grapples with the mystery of how a virus whose closest known relatives live in bats residing in subtropical southern China somehow managed to begin spreading among people more than 1,500 kilometers away in the city of Wuhan, while simultaneously leaving none of the expected traces that such outbreaks usually create. Instead, nearly two years into this pandemic, we're presented with a trail of evidence that increasingly points towards the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the so-called lab leak hypothesis as the most plausible source of the outbreak. This is a critically important conversation to be having, and Matt and Alina have made an invaluable contribution to it by working tirelessly and at great risk of themselves and to their careers in order to bring clarity to many of the facts and much of the evidence in support of the lab leak hypothesis that had been so badly muddled and discredited by various actors, both wittingly and unwittingly, since the earliest days of this pandemic. We normally release the second half of our episodes for subscribers only, but because of how important this conversation is and because of how much my guests have sacrificed in order to educate me and all of you on the origins of a virus that has upended the lives of literally billions of people, I wanted to do everything I could to share as much of their work with you as possible. If you enjoy today's episode, please take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts and consider becoming a premium subscriber if you haven't already. There's no commitment you can cancel at any time, and the entire library of Hidden Forces subscriber content going all the way back to episode one becomes instantly available to you, including the transcripts and rundowns to this episode and every other episode we've ever done. So without any further ado, please enjoy this week's episode with my guests, Matt Ridley, and Alina Chan. Matt Ridley and Alina Chan, welcome to Hidden Forces. Thanks for having us on your show. Excited to be here. It's my pleasure to have you guys on. You've written a phenomenal book, Electrifying. It's this gripping detective novel, as I was telling you, Matt, before we got on, that it dispenses with all the narrative and storytelling that oftentimes I feel is a bit too much and instead fills those spaces with facts and information. So I think it's perfect for the kind of people that listen to this podcast. Before we start the conversation, before we start talking about the book, I'd love to know about your backgrounds. And, and to that point, how each of you came to this story, because you do have very different backgrounds. Yeah, you're right. I'm 63 years old. Alina's about half that. I'm a writer. She's a scientist. I'm based in Britain. She's based in the US. But I do have a background in writing about 
genetics and evolution in particular. I've written a number of books on evolution. I did a PhD in evolutionary biology a very long time ago, and I've always been very interested in genomics. And of course, the question of where the virus came from does turn heavily on genomic information. But I couldn't have written this book myself. The genomic information that I needed to understand this required experts. And Alina is fantastically knowledgeable on this stuff. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and I have a background in medical genetics, bioengineering, and gene therapy. I do have expertise in virology. And when I first approached this question of where did the virus come from, I had no idea that it would result in this book being co-written with Matt Ridley. And so I was very surprised that Matt wanted me on board. But the experience writing the book together has been so interesting, and we really bring complementary strengths to the table. This book cannot have happened without each of our expertise. And I hope that people reading it will, you know, just be blown away <laughs> by how much information there is, uh, how intriguing this question is, and how much more we have to go to find the origin of this virus. Oh, absolutely. This book is awesome. It's so great, especially if you're someone who wants to learn about something and this issue remotely interests you. This is a phenomenal book. This was also your first book, Alina, right? I mean, Matt's written many books, but this is your first. Yes, this is my first book, and it's <laughs> it's been crazy, <laughs> to be honest. Like I have had no insight into the book publishing process, and so there's so many things I'm learning, and it took so much energy. I'm almost not sure that I can do this again, but <laughs> I was so happy that Matt brought me on board for this book. Well, you did well for yourself. You're hitched right to Matt, who's written so many best-selling books, it's hard to know which to emphasize in his introduction. So let's get to the book itself and sort of the journey that both of you went on, when did each of you begin to either doubt the natural origin story or question some of what the establishment was saying around all of this? I can probably answer that question quite easily because in February, March, April of 2020, I was telling people, no, this is almost certainly a natural spillover. These things happen all the time. We're not that good at genetic engineering. It's much more likely to be a market problem. And it was a paper by Alina and two of her colleagues that began to put a question mark in my mind about that. She can explain what that paper did, but it was in May 2020. And at the same time, the Chinese authorities announced that the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan was not the site of a spillover, but might have been the site of a super spreader event between human beings. And that was the moment when I began to think, I'm sorry, we've really got to take seriously the possibility that this happened in a laboratory because we know there is a laboratory in Wuhan that studies exactly these kinds of viruses. For me, the, the journey started out actually looking at a different question. So I had been working with a research collaborator to see if we could use machine learning to understand the biology of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And we soon realized that we could not because there was not enough high quality training data. And that's when I read the news and I, I saw there was very little mutation accumulating in this virus, which completely conflicted with what we saw with SARS-1, the first SARS virus that emerged in 2002 to 2004. And so that started us on a journey of trying to understand how this virus had gotten so good at infecting and transmitting in humans. Well, can you talk a little bit more about that? First of all, besides COVID-1, mm -hmm. what do we know about coronaviruses in general as a category, how they evolve from the moment that they present in human populations? And how does one go about trying to investigate that? 
let me start by saying that the technology that's available to us today for tracking novel pathogens, novel viruses and coronaviruses is super different from what we had in the 1900s. So back then we had no ability to sequence, to quickly get the genomic sequence of viruses, but today we do. So you can send a patient sample for sequencing and within two or three days, you get the whole genome of a novel pathogen. And so it's really hard to do these comparisons of coronaviruses mm. that emerged hundreds of years ago to, to the ones that emerging in like 2019, because now you can actually follow it in real time from the earliest patient case to like, you know, 10 transmissions later, and you can watch the virus evolving. You can watch it learning to be better at infecting people. So we can't keep comparing SARS to, to things like HIV, to Ebola, the, the things that emerged so long ago that we had no ability to watch it, to see it transmitting. Well, that's a great point, right? Because even in the book, you talk about this, that our sequencing technologies or procedures or protocols have advanced even since the time of COVID-1. Yes, even since SARS-1, yeah. So comparing the technology available then to now, that seemed almost primitive because you, it took you weeks to get the genome sequence of the first SARS virus, but now it, it takes people two to three days. And, and you can do that for literally millions of <laughs> virus samples. So right now we have about 4 million high quality SARS-CoV-2 genome sequences. For SARS-1, we have maybe 100. So it's not comparable. So this is actually great because I was going to ask you about this later, but let's skip ahead now. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about how scientists track the evolution of COVID-1 and how soon after that we were able to understand where it came from, right? Because I, that was, I think, one of the compelling facts in the book, which is the discrepancy between how much we knew about COVID-1 and how early we knew it versus where we are still with COVID-2 and our inability to get a clear sense of its origins. Yes. So one common misconception is that it took 10 years or 14 years to find the proximal animal source or the intermediate host of SARS-1, when in reality, it only took about two months once they realized it was a coronavirus and when they isolated the first SARS virus. So the storyline is like this. In January of 2003, hospitals in Guangdong started seeing a lot of these mysterious pneumonia cases. They immediately started contact tracing and found earlier cases even in November. And by March of 2003, they isolated the coronavirus. They took another month at least to sequence the entire genome. So by April, they got it. And by May, they had already found animal sources. So they went to all the nearby markets and they found that there were numerous types of animals that were infected with this virus. So it was super fast. <laughs> Even using the technology in the early 2000s, they tracked down the intermediate host. They knew there was a wildlife trade connection. But compare that to SARS-2, we're, we're closing in on two years post-outbreak. They still haven't found the animal source, even though they could get the sequence in just two days from a patient. Okay, so how important is now switching to COVID-2. How important is the story of the Yunnan province miners working in bat-infested copper mines who were sickened with a mysterious pneumonia in 2012 to this story? Shall I jump in on that? Because yeah. we start the book with that story. And 2012, six men get sick. Three of them die. They're treated for mysterious pneumonia. They've been shoveling guano from bats in a abandoned copper mine, 150 meters underground. And the suspicion of all the doctors who treat them is that this is a form of SARS. And since by then they knew that 
the reservoir of SARS, the wild reservoir of SARS is in horseshoe bats. And there are horseshoe bats in this mine shaft. The Wuhan Institute of Virology gets very interested in this mine and sends seven expeditions in several years, maybe more in later years, to analyze the bats in this mine shaft. And one of the viruses they bring back to Wuhan, which is a long way away, 1800 kilometers by road, as far as Orlando is from New York. One of the viruses they bring back from one of these expeditions turns out in February 2020 to be the closest match to SARS-CoV-2, a 96.2% similar virus. So it's not the immediate ancestor, but it is a hint as to where we might go and look and find the close cousins of the virus infecting human beings. And yet, it takes us a couple of months in the spring of 2020 to get that much information out because the first report from the Wuhan Institute of Virology of the SARS-CoV-2 genome mentions finding another virus that's similar, but doesn't mention that it was involved in an incident where three men died and three others were very sick, changes the name of the virus, and doesn't mention the location, doesn't even give a reference to the previous paper that had first described that other bat virus. So it's strange to us that there was such a lack of transparency about where this closest relative of SARS-CoV-2 came from. So there was a lot of stuff in the book. This is where I struggled also to try and follow along every single detail. And I think it helps if you're if you're a scientist and and you have an idea of how viruses are stored in different databases and, and all these different types of collaborations between labs, it might be easy. But let's try and flesh out some of those details here. So I think, what was that, December 2020, when the WIV published that paper, where they changed the name? The preprint was the end of January, and it was published in February. In February 2020. Okay. Yeah. So it was right at the time that this was categorized as a pandemic. How unusual is that? to change the name of a virus, to not reference the past paper? I mean, what what was the explanation that the lab and that the researchers gave for that? Well, there were several explanations given. One was that the naming conventions had changed in the meantime, but it later came to light that they'd been using the old name right up to 2019. So that didn't quite make sense. And the other explanation was that they wanted to use a name that indicated the date on which it was caught and so on. So we haven't really had a very good explanation for the name change. The name change may not be significant. It may be that there was just a sort of decision to change the name and not they weren't trying to obscure the, the link. But the effect of all this obfuscation was that for several months in, in the early part of the pandemic, the fact that the closest relative of this virus had been collected by scientists after an incident in which people died, which might have been the first, indeed the only until that date, instance in which individuals had caught a SARS-like virus directly from bats. The effect was to obscure that and to let the story about the seafood market have a free run in the media for several months. Alina and Matt, to both of you, what do we know about the extent to which the Wuhan Institute of Virology investigated itself? To the extent, in other words, that it tried to ascertain whether or not it, in fact, was the source of a leak, because Dr. Xi, the, the so-called Batwoman is a nickname that she's given in China, the head of the one of the particular facilities in the lab, you can enlighten me, she 
said at one point during an interview, I think with the BBC, that when she first heard that there was this virus circulating in Wuhan or once it had been sequenced, I can't remember what, that she was, her initial reaction was, oh my God, I hope this didn't come from our own lab. So what do we know about what they did to investigate and to determine whether or not they were the source of this leak? So I'd like to take this opportunity to clear up another misconception, actually. So this there has been misinformation spread, unfortunately, by even some experts and journalists that Wuhan City is a place where SARS coronaviruses are rife and circulating and that you would expect a SARS coronavirus outbreak to happen there. This is completely untrue. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been built there decades before SARS-1 was even a thing. So it wasn't built there to study SARS viruses. Shi Zhengli, who is the PI, the bad woman who works at the WIV, she actually was studying shrimp viruses before SARS-1 started. So this whole thing about SARS viruses being rampant in Wuhan City is misinformation, which unfortunately even made it onto the Colbert. Was that something that Peter (laughs) Daszak was saying at some point? I don't think so. Yeah. Sorry. He's too much of an expert to say such a thing <laughs> in this area. Because there so, was a point in the book where you talked about, I mean, there were a number of instances where you highlighted different contradictory statements, but one case had to do with Peter Desk specifically. And I, I couldn't remember if that was the one you were mentioning, where he contradicted himself before the pandemic. He was saying one thing, and then after the pandemic, he took a completely different line. Well, I think what you're referring to is he was involved in a study of whether or not there are antibodies to SARS-like viruses in people in southern China, in Yunnan in particular. Mm-hmm. Right. And as a control comparison for that study, they actually you chose the city of Wuhan, sort of by chance, to see if they would find antibodies in people there. And they found no antibodies to mm-hmm. SARS-like viruses in Wuhan, whereas they found a few in Yunnan. Now, Dr. Dazak said at one point, this shows that spillover is rare. And he later said at another point, this shows that spillover can be common. You know, So you can sort of see it either way, depending on how you wish to interpret this. But you know, the possibility that people living in the far southwest of China, in Yunnan province, were coming into contact with bats and very occasionally picking up these viruses is not impossible. You know, That might happen. The chances of that happening in Wuhan are extremely remote because there's no sign of such viruses in the bats that live around Wuhan, particularly in winter when such bats would be hibernating in that area. And these kinds of bats don't really live in cities. They don't live in buildings. They live in natural caves. So there are all sorts of reasons why Wuhan is a surprising place for this virus to turn up. And the question we have to ask, the central question, is how a bat virus from southern China or possibly Southeast Asia made it to Wuhan. What was the route by which it went there and nowhere else? You know, it didn't pop up in another city along the way or somewhere like that. Right. And just to emphasize something, not only were there fewer antibodies present related to coronaviruses similar to this one in miners in Yunnan province relative to SARS-CoV-1, but also there wasn't a, a large migratory pattern of people from that region going to Wuhan. So there were two ways in which the evidence was much weaker for natural spillover with COVID-2 as it was with COVID-1, correct? Yes. If your assumption is that somehow a rural villager, a wildlife animal trader, brought this virus up from South China or Southeast Asia into Wuhan, then 
it's challenged by two facts. And one is that the wildlife trade in central China is very low. So if you look at the actual numbers, they were selling about 11 civet cats a month across the entire city of Wuhan. So it's, it's very low. It's not a place where there's a lot of wildlife trade compared to South China and Southeast Asia. In fact, Peter Dashak himself, when he wrote to the NIH in 2016, he said that there was too little wildlife trade left in South China, and that's why they had to go down to seven countries in Southeast Asia to get samples from the wildlife trade to look for SARS viruses. So it's not like there was a booming <laughs> wildlife trade in central China. And the second fact is that although Wuhan is a central city in China, the rural villages in South China, they rarely left their towns. You know, if you look, if you interviewed people there, uh, some of them don't even leave the province for, for years. So like, it's not like you would get infected with a bad virus and jump on a high-speed train, getting to Wuhan and infecting people there. So you have to think about how frequently it is that, that these viruses are being imported from South China, from remote caves and villages up into central China. Okay, so let's talk about how the virus may have gotten to Wuhan, absent the wildlife trade, absent it coming on some kind of other animal or through an infected person, and how the lab factors into all of this. So maybe we can sort of also help listeners understand what kind of research the lab was doing and how that research was partitioned. And then also, what were the sort of safety protocols that were being employed there? Yeah, well, the one group of people that we know who visited caves and mine shafts in southern China, sampled bats and went straight to Wuhan, were scientists. That we know because they published numerous papers about it. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is studying viruses of many different kinds and is interested particularly in the SARS-like viruses to try and work out which ones of those threaten a future pandemic. That's what they've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. And to do that, they did several things. They first of all went to remote areas and visited caves and sampled the bats taking swabs from their noses and their anuses, also collecting their droppings, sometimes collecting bats themselves, we think, and doing so usually with protective gear on, but not always. We've seen photographs of them handling bats without much protection on. Then those samples would be stored in liquid nitrogen and taken to Wuhan, where they would be experimented on. These experiments were intended to find out how dangerous these viruses were, whether they were capable of infecting human beings. And first of all, you would sequence the virus to get a genomic sequence. Then you would try and isolate a live virus, which isn't necessarily easy. You can find evidence there's viruses in these, but you can't necessarily grow live viruses. But they did succeed in doing that on a number of occasions. Then you would swap genes from one of these viruses with another virus in order to find out how dangerous the virus was with or without a different spike gene in particular in it. And then you would test it in human cells and you would also test it in humanized mice. These are mice carrying human genes. Well, I'd love to hear Alina's. Alina, can you flesh out everything that Matt said? And also, does this fall under the category of gain of function research that we've heard so much about? So I think it's important to revisit why these scientists were doing this 
research. Why were they going down into places where you'd expect to find all these dangerous animal human pathogens and bring them all up into an urban center to experiment on? So they were doing this to try and predict the next pandemic. They were trying to predict what types of viruses might one day spill over into humans. So there was a novel mission. There was a goal to protect lives and fill out scientific knowledge about all of the viruses in existence. So this was something they were really proud of doing. It wasn't like they were doing it secretly. <laughs> it wasn't like bioweapons or anything. Well, that was um, the name of one of the programs of the EcoHealth Alliance, right? Predict? Yes. Yeah. It still is. <laughs> so it's continued on in a different name, but this type of work continues to be very highly funded. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being funded into virus hunting. And so they would take these viruses to their top institutes. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology is one of the world's like most famous virology institutes. They are the first in China to have a BSL-4, the highest biosafety security lab. But this work with the live SARS-like viruses had all been done at BSL-2 or in animals at BSL-3. So BSL-2 is quite low biosafety level. So you wouldn't normally work with respiratory airborne viruses at BSL-2 because it cannot protect you at all. So it's just wearing a surgical mask or you're not wearing any masks at all? No, you, you don't even need to wear a mask at BSL-2. So essentially it's just gloves. It's just gloves protecting Help me understand that a second. And I really, I want you to be able to continue along the point you were, you were making, but I just want to ask this as well. Given that coronaviruses are predominantly respiratory viruses, how does that make sense? So I suspect that the scientists had worked with these viruses for so long that they started to be to feel too safe around them. So they, they felt that, you know, we've been sampling these pathogens, we've been collecting them from thousands of bats and, you know, thousands of people and animals in, in rural areas, and we never got sick. So I suspect that most they of just, them can't infect human beings. Can because they haven't bats, evolved yet yes. to infect humans. Exactly. And so they, they felt they, they let their guards down and they didn't want to, you know, put in all that extra money. So it could be millions more of cost to move up into BSL-3 or 4. But just help me understand that a second. Just one more question, not to beat this horse mm -hmm. to death, but I acknowledge completely what Matt said about the fact that many of these viruses hadn't evolved to be able to infect humans. But the work that's being done in the lab is to actually make them capable of infecting humans and infecting them more effectively as well in increasing their virality. So how does that square does it really speak to a fundamental breakdown in safety protocols at the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I suspect there might have been some cognitive dissonance that on the one hand, while they really thought that they were working with viruses primed for spillover into humans, at the same time, they thought that it wasn't going to cause an outbreak in their lab. So huh, I don't assume any motivations here. I, I really do think that they were not afraid of a lab accident. But just to, Dimitri, to pick up on your point, as someone coming into this somewhat naively from outside, I, I know a lot about genomics, but I'm not very up to date. I haven't been following virology very closely. I was genuinely surprised to find out what is going on in laboratories like this, that you would not only grow live viruses in relatively low security laboratories, even though you think they're probably not capable of infecting human beings. You would then swap their genes, test them on human cells, which is in a sense training them on human receptors, because if they're slightly good at it, they'll get better at it as you do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, this really does seem to be an extraordinarily risky 
thing to be doing in a laboratory. Someone, I can't remember now who said, this is like looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. Yeah, you know, maybe later in the conversation, I want to ask you about that again, because I want to know where else this could be happening, because this speaks directly to the question of why is this important? Why should anyone care? If in fact, we did have a lab leak in this case, then we should be very concerned about practices at this facility and any others. But Alina, let's go back to you. Your answer was in response to my original question of what sort of work was going on at this laboratory, and you proceeded to give a, a, a long and, and detailed explanation. So please continue with your, your answer. So once you have a virus sample in your lab, you try to sequence it to see what virus is in that sample. But on top of that, you can try growing the virus in the lab, and this is extremely routine. So you just want to grow it up to study it, to try infecting different types of cells with it. And so this lab we know now had a whole boutique range of cell lines that they had created out of various animals. So like primates, bats, pigs, humans. So they could test the virus on any of these cell types and they could also test it in animal models of disease. So they had bats, <laughs> they had humanized mice and they also had civets in the lab. So you could see how this virus could cause disease in these models and use that to try and inform therapeutics or even vaccine development for humans. You know, so speaking about this gain of function, one of the things that you highlight in the book and you make uh, quite a big deal of is the ACE2 receptor. What is the ACE2 receptor and why is it important? Is how is it relative to this conversation? So the ACE2 entry receptor is used by both SARS-1 and SARS-2 for the virus to enter the cell. So this receptor tells the virus, this is a cell you can infect and make more copies of yourself with. So people were really interested in understanding how well SARS-CoV-2 could use the ACE2 entry receptor. And they found that they could actually use it much better than SARS-1. And there have been a lot of speculation about how this happens on a molecular level. But we know at least that this virus is extremely competent. So when it was first detected, it was good to go. It already knew how to use this entry receptor very well. And there was some speculation that this might have happened because it had encountered a human ACE2 receptor somewhere along the way. So it's possible that this virus, before it was detected, had been circulating in humans for maybe months or years without us knowing. Or it might have been in a lab and tested on human cells expressing this receptor, or maybe even mice, humanized mice, expressing this human ACE2 receptor. So these are options we have to consider. Okay, so further to the point about the ACE2 receptor, what is unique about that? I mean, is this one of the reasons why COVID-2 presents as more of a endothelial or vascular disease than as a respiratory virus? So SARS-1 also uses the ACE2 entry receptor. So both viruses are airborne viruses, and they have similar infection tropism. I, I hesitate to speculate too much on, on why SARS-CoV-2 is different from SARS-1, because although they're the same type of virus, there's sufficient differences between them that are not understood at, at such a highly precise level yet. But we do know that SARS-CoV-2, it affects people who have underlying heart conditions, for example. So, no, that's fine. Um, and that's fair. And that's yeah. fair. Let me ask you about something else, which is the furin cleavage site, which uh, generated so much controversy early on in the pandemic. Many people felt that it was sort of, I think there was actually one person maybe at the NIH or some other, or CDC or somewhere who said it was the quote, smoking gun 
that this was uh, engineered in the lab. But it turns out that story is actually a bit more complicated. And we actually talked about this a bit with our previous guest, the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, on the podcast. What is the furin cleavage site? How is it relevant to the way in which this virus infects human cells? And what can we say about its role in this controversy? So the furin cleavage site is a unique feature that's found in SARS-CoV-2. So amongst all SARS-like viruses, SARS-CoV-2 is the first and only SARS-like virus to have this unique feature. So this furin cleavage site sits in the spike of the uh, virus. So the spike is a part of the virus sticking out of its surface, and it's the part that latches onto host cells. So it, it latches onto the ACE2 receptor of cells. And if you have this furin cleavage site, it gets primed in such a way that makes the virus more infectious. So SARS-2 is the only one with this site, and it has led to a lot of controversy about whether the site might have been man-made, might have been artificially inserted into this virus, because there is quite a history of virologists inserting these furin cleavage sites into novel coronaviruses or SARS-CoV-1 or the spike of these viruses just to see how it changes the infectiousness of the virus. So when a novel SARS-like virus, SARS-CoV-2, with a novel furin cleavage site appeared in Wuhan, where there's a lab that is known for doing these types of experiments, one immediate thought was, could SARS-CoV-2 have been a natural SARS-like virus that was collected and then had a furin cleavage site engineered into it. Yeah, if the furin cleavage site does turn out to be natural, if we find a close cousin of SARS-CoV-2 in a bat in southern China that does have a furin cleavage site, which we had expected to do by now, but we haven't. We found lots of similar viruses and none of them have got one. But if we do, that doesn't prove that the virus came naturally because if you think about it, if you took a virus like that into the laboratory the furin cleavage site would make it pretty infectious and would make it pretty likely that any research workers would pick it up. So even a natural furin cleavage site would have made the virus more risky to handle in a laboratory. You know, it is one of the features that makes this virus capable of mounting a global pandemic. I think that's fair to say. But it is, as Alina says, increasingly suspicious that we can't find this sequence in natural cousins of SARS-CoV-2, and that we know that experiments were being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, among other places, to deliberately put furin cleavage sites into the genomes of viruses in order to make them easier to grow and isolate in the laboratory and to study what these furin cleavage sites do to try and understand them. It had become quite a fashionable topic. And whereas there's no experiment doing that into a SARS-like virus, just recently a document has emerged in which the proposal to do that in a SARS-like virus was surfaced. And it came from the EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak and a co-investigator on that grant application, which was to DARPA, to part of the Pentagon, was Xi Zhengli of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I want to expand on that slightly too. So when some independent analysts or sleuths had suggested that the furin cleavage site was inserted into SARS-CoV-2, Peter Daszak, president of the EcoHealth Alliance and longtime collaborator and funder of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, he called that a conspiracy theory. So he said, putting furin cleavage sites into <laughs> SARS-CoV-2, that idea was a conspiracy theory. But in September of this year, 
Documents were leaked showing that he and his collaborators from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and elsewhere had proposed putting fear and cleavage sites into novel SARS-like viruses. So it's kind of bizarre that he would call that a conspiracy theory. Okay, so perfect. I have a question here because this comes up so much in the book over and over and over again, which is all the smoke, right? You can't identify any particular fire, but there is so much circumstantial evidence pointing towards the lab. That's number one. I want to ask you about that. And then two is, what is the connection? Because this is also, I mean, this has been such, you know, speaking to you now, I, I do realize what a disservice, the way in which this story has been modeled by politics and innuendo and assumptions and off the cuff opinionating in the mainstream conversation, what a disservice that has done for this conversation, because I've become so confused, whether it's you know a bioweapon or lab leak, or whether it is Anthony Fauci, gain of function, Peter Daszak. What is the relationship between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and uh, American public funding, the EcoHealth Alliance, the NIH? What is that connection? Because it's been so muddled and I'm still confused as to what it is. Yeah, well, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is, as Alina says, one of the leading virology research institutes in China. It has a team that's particularly on the trail of SARS. In order to do their work, they collaborate with scientists elsewhere in the world. A stream of funding develops over the last 10 years from the US government, the NIH, and the Department of Defense, and the USAID, which goes through the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, this is a private foundation based in New York, which has transformed itself from a studying wildlife to studying the viruses of wildlife in particular. And they develop a very close working relationship with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They do the sampling together on the bats, and funding goes from the US government through the EcoHealth Alliance to support some of the experiments done by the Wuhan Institute of Virology. A lot of funding comes from the Chinese government too, so it's not as if this is the only funding stream. But there is no doubt that experiments on SARS-like viruses were being done in the city of Wuhan with the US government funding and not many other places in China. But they were also being done in the United States, right? Most notably at Chapel Hill. Correct. So the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has uh, Ralph Barrick and his team, who are the pioneers and the best researchers in studying and manipulating coronaviruses. They are working on various different coronaviruses, but they don't have access to SARS-like ones, because for a start, horseshoe bats don't live in North America, let alone their viruses. And so in order to get access to SARS-like viruses, They also collaborate with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which sends them sequences of viruses that they're discovering, which are then assembled into viruses for experiments at Chapel Hill. And some of the techniques that are developed at Chapel Hill are shared with the Wuhan Institute of Virology to improve their ability to work on these viruses. So there's a a collaborate, not a particularly close collaboration. These people aren't necessarily in each other's labs, but they are communicating. And one of them has access to more viruses and the other has access to more techniques. What do we know about the safety protocols at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill? I think one thing we know is that Ralph Barrick himself was critical of the fact that some of the experiments in Wuhan were being done at lower safety levels. 
So by implication, he is using higher safety levels for that kind of experiment in North Carolina. Alina, did you have anything that you wanted to add to this? Yeah, I wanted to go back to your earlier question about how the WIV investigated themselves. So it's very problematic that the origin of COVID-19 is being investigated by some of the experts who have the most to lose if this virus came from a lab. So Peter Dashak of the EcoHealth Alliance, is <laughs> he had been appointed to even chair a study group at The Lancet to look into the origins. Wasn't he also and part he was, of the team with the WHO? Yes, exactly. He was also a subgroup leader in the joint China WHO study for the origin of COVID-19. So can you imagine that this man who could lose funding, lose his reputation, maybe even his personal safety is jeopardized if this came from a lab? He is being asked to tell us whether or not it came from a lab. And when he went to Wuhan, he visited the WIV. And basically what they did was they asked the scientists that, did this come from the lab? And they said, no, it didn't. And they said, great, then our job is done and a lab leak is extremely unlikely. So that's the level of investigation that happened. Can I pick up on one thing, Dimitri? A moment ago, you you talked about how disappointing the the coverage of this, both politically and in the media, has been. And I think it's worth us emphasising at this point that we couldn't have written this book on our own. The key sources for us were not mainstream scientists on the whole. Some of them were, but mostly not were not intelligence agencies. We talked to intelligence agencies and we got some information out of them, but not a great deal. Were not the media, with some exceptions, the media has not shown huge interest in this topic. They were a group of open source analysts, amateurs mostly, some of them scientists, some of them not, who in their own time and at their own expense have been exploring the recesses of the internet in China and elsewhere, to find documents that shed light on what's been going on. People like Yuri Dagin, Rosanna Segreto, The Seeker, who's in India, Francisco de Ribera in Spain. These indispensable people to the writing of this book, we wouldn't have found out nearly as much as we did without their work. Some of them started this work because they read some of Alina's work. So there is a sort of circularity here. But it's a remarkable story of these internet sleuths, that was their own name that they used for themselves at one point. I also call them open source analysts, because they're not dealing with, you know, top secret information. They're simply finding their way into documents that are revealing and that are in very obscure places, and then putting together extraordinary databases to work out exactly which viruses were collected from which cave on which date by which scientists, you know, so that we've got a a complete picture of this. And it's not complete. There's missing information, particularly, you know, we found a lot of details about viruses collected before 2016, but surprisingly little about the viruses collected by the Wuhan Institute of Virology after that. And that's what we need. So that's actually kind of where I wanted to go with this next question, which was, what would be needed to, if not put this to rest, then then to satisfy critics like yourself? And what has been done in terms of obfuscation and in terms of impeding any investigation on the part of perhaps not just Chinese authorities, maybe also international bodies and Western individuals, institutions that are involved here. Help me and my listeners understand 
what we're talking about here? Well, one thing that we need is access to the Wuhan Institute of Virology's pathogen database. This went offline, as discovered by one of these open source analysts, Charles Small, on the 12th of September 2019, before the pandemic. And it was never accessible after that, or at least it was never accessed. It may have been briefly back online, but it was never accessed from outside. The excuse given for taking it offline and keeping it offline is that people were trying to hack it. Well, that makes very little sense. Why would they be trying to do that in September 2019? And even so, even if they were, that's no reason not to share the information that's in it. We know it had over 22,000 samples and sequences in it, and we know that about 15,000 of those were from bats. We know that these include actual samples of viruses, but also sequences of viruses that have been sequenced. That information in that database would exonerate the laboratory quite effectively if it was brought to light and it was found that it did not include any close cousins of SARS-CoV-2. It wouldn't necessarily close the matter, but it would get very close to exonerating it. So it does seem very odd that despite many requests, Xi Zhengli and her colleagues have not seen fit to share the information from inside that database. And that is what the World Health Organization, Western governments and others should be asking for as a very first step to finding out what happened. The other piece of information that I think we need to know is who were the first cases of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan? What was their professions? Where did they live? That kind of information, which was very useful in the case of SARS-1, because it immediately showed that food handlers were more likely to be catching this disease. So those are the two bits of information which the World Health Organization in its joint study with China, which took a long time to organize and then happened in January, February 2021, really didn't manage to get at all close to and were, were generally fobbed off in a way that even the WHO admitted afterwards were pretty embarrassing. What reason did the lab, did the WIV give for not releasing the relative information from that database? Well, they just say, oh, people were trying to hack it. No, that's for why they took it down, right? Which exactly. actually raises another question for me, which is, does that suggest that perhaps this virus had already, that they knew that the virus had leaked well before the world even, even knew? Because that's also one of the questions, which is it's not clear. Again, we're completely hypothesizing here, and I just want to make clear to listeners about this. And that's partly because as you've made and others have stated, it's because so much of the information that you need in order to come to determination is not within your control. It's something that you have to get and the officials have to be willing to release it. But there's sort of one of two possibilities or maybe more, but one is that it leaked and they were aware of the leak very early on in the process. Or the other is that they weren't aware of the leak and then subsequently they went back and found that there was a leak or maybe they became increasingly concerned that it could have happened because of their security protocols and decided to just, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, just ignore it, shut it down, because they're afraid that it might in fact be true that it came from their lab. Yeah, I think I'd just like to say to that, and Alina should chip in here, but Alina and I are very careful in our book not to speculate on any of this. In other words, we're trying to stick to what we can find out and not get into the business of 
building up possibilities about what might have happened for which we've got no evidence. So those are, you know, what you've described are possibilities. The one thing we know is that there are differing interpretations about when the first person got ill. The WHO-China joint study said the 8th of December. Before that, the Chinese authorities had said the 1st of December. According to a document seen by the South China Morning Post, they said the 17th of November. The genomic evidence, if you sort of extrapolate backwards to when the existing strains of the virus share a common ancestor, points to somewhere between late September and early December. So October, November, sometime like that. The idea that there was an accident around the 12th of September when they took the virus database offline seems a little early, frankly, but it's possible that something happened. We should say that the Wuhan Institute of Virology said that one of the things they did when they heard about the virus was check whether or not their accident record showed anything that could have been the source of it and nothing did. You know, they have said that. Alina, you probably want to come in here because you know this subject better than I do. I want to zoom back out to the big picture of what this database is too. So this database at the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been a prototype for the Global Virome Project. So the purpose of building this database was to catalog all of the viruses you can find in nature and then predict the next pandemic. So a pandemic has actually happened. <laughs> and for some reason, the scientists who made this database to predict and prevent pandemics are not sharing it with the world. So I cannot understand why this is happening. They continue to fund these efforts, but there's no measure in place to make sure that when a pandemic actually happens, this information is made useful. <laughs> so right. for me, the three options that you, you laid out, Dimitri, they totally make sense. So this leak could have happened. People may have known. Maybe they they didn't know. And then when the pandemic happened, they, they were like, oh yeah, it's in the database and we can't share it. They might not know even if there might be traces of this virus in the database, so they don't want to share it. So it's just troubling to me that there's no way to get the information using international collaboration or, or true scientists. And the fact that there aren't more scientists calling for this database to be released, it surprises me too that they're like, oh yeah, we put you know hundreds of millions of dollars into this, but now we don't need that database. There's nothing useful in there. <laughs> there was actually a claim made by Peter Dashak when he went to the WIV. He said... Yeah, I've seen that database. It's an Excel sheet and there's nothing useful in there. So I'm like, if there's nothing useful Bizarre. in that, then why are we paying money for this? Why are we funding this kind of work if it's not useful when the pandemic happens? There's a line in the movie Dr. Strangelove where Dr. Strangelove says, there's no point in building a doomsday machine that blows up the entire world unless you tell the other side you're doing it. <laughs> and I feel the same about this. There's no point in building up a database about viruses intending to use it to predict the next pandemic if you don't share it with the world when a pandemic does happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, this is now, this is the frustrating thing with this situation, which is that none of us here wants to sit around and speculate. And there's only so much that can be gleamed without all the data. So let's maybe kind of pivot to something else that you mentioned, Alina, which was what we know about how this virus spread early on. What do we know about the earliest cases, where they were, who they were, and how close or what their connections may or may not have been to both the market and to the lab? I do want to press the point that hope is not lost. So there is a lot of information out here in the US, maybe even in the UK, that can help us fill out the picture of how this virus might have originated from a 
maybe a lab in Wuhan, right? So there's a lot of communications and documents out here in the U.S. relating to work that was done in Wuhan. And those should be studied immediately. Like we shouldn't put this off for another five to 10 years or something. We should look into it immediately so that we can understand what type of research was happening in Wuhan and whether that might have led to SARS-CoV-2 escaping from a lab and causing an outbreak there. So going back to the earliest cases, we know for sure that there was a cluster of cases at a seafood market in Wuhan. But many of the early cases had no exposure to these live animal markets. When you hear people saying that some of the other early cases had market exposure, they're talking about a Costco-like market. So the market in, in question is an RT mart. So if you Google it, it's a hypermarket. It sells like clothing and stuff like a Costco or Walmart. And one of the earliest cases was exposed to a Costco, the RT mart, right? But you don't expect these RT mutts to have wild animals and they're none <laughs> that you could catch COVID-19 So help from. me understand, how unusual is that if you're tracing a spillover, let's assume that this was a natural event, how unusual is that, that that one of the earliest known cases would be so far disconnected from a market where a spillover could have happened? I mean, help me understand, and for listeners who don't have a background in epidemiological spread, like how likely that is, how, what that would require. So there's actually quite a bit of both genetic and case data that suggests that the seafood market was a later super spreader event amongst humans, that a human had brought the virus into the seafood market, which caused a super spreader event in that wet and poorly ventilated space. If you look at the genetic data, it suggests that this virus had pre-existed the market, that it had been spreading in people in Wuhan before the seafood market. And so could it be possible that there had been an animal in the market there that caused this outbreak? Yes. And it would be difficult to trace without having the data concerning the earliest cases. So till today, China is not sharing information about the earliest cases and apparently have not made any efforts to trace those cases. So they haven't gone to those earliest cases and said, have you been exposed to someone from a lab? Were you yourself a lab worker? Like, where were you in the last like 24 hours? That kind of thing. So that work apparently has not been done. Or if it has been done, it hasn't been shared with us. So I want to ask you a question that doesn't have to do with the origins of the virus, but it just came up for me when I was reading your book, which is that early on in, in the course of this spread of this virus, we were told that Oftentimes, coronaviruses will become weaker over time. They'll become more contagious, but they'll become less deadly because the viruses adapt. They don't want to kill their host because that's not advantageous for spreading. And their goal is to replicate as much as possible. Because this disease early on was both adapted for humans as it presented, and it presented with this long incubation period where it could spread asymptomatically, are the sort of fitness conditions such that it isn't necessarily true that it would evolve to be less deadly because it can spread for such a long period of time before it actually shows up symptomatically in patients? I think that the general rule is that respiratory viruses do seem to tend to evolve towards low virulence, high contagion, low virulence. So, you know, there's 200 different kinds of virus that cause the common cold. Very few of them kill us. Whereas Insect-borne or sexually transmitted or waterborne uh, viruses quite often remain highly virulent. So that's a general rule. But it's by no means hard and fast, and you can think of exceptions to that rule. And as you say, 
pre-symptomatic transmission does change the equation somewhat. Here was a virus that combined being very easy to catch, not making you very ill in many cases, so you still went on with your daily life and encountered other people, but killing a significant number of people as well. This was a horrifying combination because most viruses that kill people will probably make them ill enough so they don't spread it much. But this one really did find a sweet spot between being contagious and mild in lots of people, but virulent and deadly in some people. That's the way I look at it. Whether it will calm down and become like a common cold, as quite a lot of people still think, we don't know. And, you know, the measures we're taking to deal with it might affect that, you know, the, the vaccines and other interventions. But it does look like the four common cold coronaviruses, you know, may have started out more virulent to start with and then and then calmed down. But there's no hard and fast rules here. And I don't think we fully understand how the contagiousness and the virulence of viruses evolve. So the severity of COVID-19 cases will likely go down in the future. And it's likely because of the widespread vaccination and also infection of people. So as people get infected, they will build immunity. And so even if you get infected with COVID again uh, in the future, it will hopefully likely be less severe than the first time you got it. So even if we see the severity of cases going down, it doesn't mean that the virus has evolved to be less Mm -hmm. virulent. It, It just means that we have adapted to the virus. Sure. So what can Western governments do at this point, and let's say citizens of Western governments and pressuring their governments do to help find the answers that you and the sort of this community of online sleuths have been searching for? Is there anything that we can do? I've been surprised by how many people say to me, A, it doesn't matter whether we find out or not. B, perhaps it's better if we don't find out because it'll lead to a row with China. That feels to me inappropriate reaction. We've had millions of people die. We need to know whether it came from a wildlife market, in which case we need to clean up and clamp down on wildlife markets, or whether it came from a laboratory accident, in which case we need to clean up and clamp down on laboratory accidents. It seems to me that's very obvious to prevent the next pandemic. We also need to know, in order to deter bad actors in this, I mean, there are terrorists out there and rogue regimes that are watching this and saying, I could do a lot of damage with one of these viruses, and I might not even get the blame. And so I think it's completely wrong to say this is a question we'd much rather not answer. Now, how do we go about in the West getting towards an answer to this? I don't fully know the answer to that, but I think that what Western governments should be doing is drawing up a sort of treaty of transparency on this topic, in which we promise to reveal anything and everything we know about this virus and about any future epidemic virus, and shaming China into signing up to this treaty. It's not dissimilar to how we've approached nuclear proliferation, if you like, It won't be easy. It might not even be successful, but I think it's the way we've got to go. Alina, what are your thoughts on this? Do you have any thoughts about what you think could be done? What kind of pressure could be applied? There are plenty of routes to find the answers. 
that we are looking for. And so there's so much to do that I don't think we are exhausted of, of, of options yet. So unfortunately, finding this information, so all these communications and documents describing what the WIV and what the Equal Health Alliance knew, it's not something that civilians can just write letters to them and say, can you share all your emails with us? It's going to require quite a bit of political influence or subpoenas. So we need the commitment of international governments to find the origin of the virus. It's not something that internet sleuths can carry on their shoulders from beginning to end. Do either of you fear political reprisal from China because of the work that you've done on this and trying to expose any potential leaks at the lab? I think it's a, a reasonable question, and fear is not the right word, but we both know that writing this book may not have made us very popular in some circles, and that may have repercussions. So we expect to have to be careful in our lives, I think it's fair to say. Alina, how about you? I am really fearful. Were you born in China? No, I'm not born in China, and I have no family in China, but it it's not an understatement to, to say that China is a superpower now. And so it has really far reach. It's almost maybe near invincible in terms of what it can get done in any part of the world. So I am worried and I lose sleep over this. <laughs> and when Matt Ridley asked me to co-write this book with him, I really had to sit and think about this for half a year almost. Like I was just sitting there and thinking about all my options and, and thinking, is it worth it to write this book? And why would I write this book, right? And so for me, ultimately... Writing the book about the origin of this virus, making sure that everyone is caught up to speed and knows as much fact as possible about the origin of this virus, that became more important to me than even my personal safety. And so, and so I finally committed to writing this book with Matt, but I am afraid. I am afraid of the Chinese government. Have you taken, are either of you taking precautions? I mean, I know that you've taken unusual precautions with respect to the sharing of the manuscript for the book. Is there anything else? Have you changed the way that you live your daily lives as a result of this? If I had, I wouldn't tell you. How about that as an answer? Sounds just good enough for me, Matt. Alina, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't have to answer that if you don't want. The last question that I want to ask both of you, because you've been so generous with your time today, is not necessarily what you think happened or what you think is more likely. Feel free to answer that as well. Again, one of the hazards of speculating. But I'd be curious. It's something you actually wrote in your book because you actually said the readers of this book must certainly be wondering what we think. And I certainly am wondering. But more to the point, do you think that we'll ever get a satisfactory answer to this question? I think we will. Um, I know a lot of people think we won't. But I think that there are enough people who do know enough information somewhere, whether it's a wildlife market or a laboratory. And eventually those people will have reason to come forward. Either that or we will eventually find sufficient documentary evidence to persuade us one way or another. It might take a long time. It might even take a regime change in China. But there's an example from the Soviet Union of a anthrax leak at a biological weapons plant in the city of Sverdlovsk, which happened in the 1980s and which was investigated by an international team who agreed with the Soviet authorities that this was not a, a leak, but was just a coincidence, even though 80 people died. And so the issue was put to bed. 
And then the Soviet Union fell and scientists who knew the details of that came forward and actually said, no, I'm afraid this was a leak. We left the filter off a pipe and we pumped anthrax into the air over a suburb of the city of Sverdlovsk. And that was why 80 people died. So the information did eventually come out. And I'm convinced that in this case, if there is information relating to a lab leak, it will eventually come out. Well, hopefully it doesn't. We have to wait until the end of the CCP in order to to get that answer. That is, of course, uh, not a very enticing prospect in terms of the timing, yes. I also think that we will find the origin of this virus eventually. And I hope that at that time, the story we can tell is that the current leaders and scientists rally together to investigate the origin and not one where they are trying to obscure the origin because of fear of like a trade war. So I really hope that more scientists can find their courage and call for an investigation of the origin. We we should do the right thing. Well, listen, I appreciate both of you very much. You've written a very important book, maybe really the best, I mean, certainly when it comes to the origins of COVID-19, but maybe even the best book on the subject of COVID that's currently out there. So I appreciate both of you very much. Thank you for coming on the podcast, and I wish you the best of success with the book. Thank you for some great questions and a really nice conversation. It's really good to have the chance to talk about it. My pleasure, guys. And for everyone listening, if you want access to our transcripts and to the rundowns, which are weekly research reports that I've been putting together for years, meant to help you navigate the episodes, which are full of links, images, questions, and quotes from our guests, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash Hidden Forces, and join our growing community of over 2,000 premium subscribers who support the show and help us keep it ad-free. Have a great week, everybody. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hiddenforces. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hidden Forces Pod, or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>